morning, Grace Point. It is great to see you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you before we leave today. So we're thrilled you're here. I want to go ahead and tell our students, our youth, our 6th through 12th graders, that they can now follow Jeff down into their, their own room and do their thing. I always think it sounds weird to say they're going to follow him into the basement. But they're all, we're going to put, they'll be back later. It's fine. So um, a couple of things before we jump in. One is, how many of you are familiar with um, Robin Henderson Espinoza? How many of you know Robin? Um, they're a friend of Grace Point, and um, they have a new book coming out. And today, they're having a book launch um, party gathering celebration. Um, and Grace Point is sponsoring that gathering. So um, we have uh, three tickets to that that are available. If somebody would like to go be a part of that book launch this evening, you can find the group on Facebook, the event. Um, but if you want to be a part of that, let me know before you leave today and we'll get you signed up. We have three, uh, three tickets, so we'd love for somebody to be able to use those. Um, and it should be a good time for everybody. And then the other thing is, uh, you've heard about care groups uh, here at Grace Point. They're a pretty big deal. It's how we grow together and how we connect and build relationships. Um, and we are currently, I think we have 50-some people who want to be in a care group uh, who are waiting on facilitators and hosts so that they can be in a care group. So like 50 people who are like, I want to be connected, I want to be in community, Somebody, somebody's got to help me out, and we currently don't have a space for them. So uh, I don't know when you talk about leading a care group, facilitating it, how many of you are a little intimidated by the word facilitate? How many of you are lying right now in this very moment? Okay. <laughs> So here's the thing. Here's, here's how care groups work. How many of you like to eat food and talk to people? You're all qualified. It is literally the job description of a facilitator. You have to like to eat food and hang out with people. So if you're interested in doing that, if you're interested in offering a space that you live in, that you think, hey, I can fit some people in here and they could, we could you know, make some magic happen here, um, let Steve Wire know. Steve is going to be back there at the end of the gathering at the welcome home table. He's back there right now lurking. Um, and he'll be right there, and he would love to get you connected. This is, this is such an important, vital piece of what, it, what Grace Point does, and it's the way we get to know each other in a more deep and serious way. So please see Steve if you would like to lead a group, facilitate a group, host a group, whatever that looks like. Um, so we're in a series right now called CORE, and the, this series is about our values. It's about who we are as a community here at Grace Point, and it's about um, what we hope to create in the world. So uh, last week, Erin Edwards was here, and she talked about love and courage. And wasn't Erin, wasn't she just amazing to have here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so today we're going to continue that by talking about two other values that are kind of connected to each other, and that's curiosity and humility. How many of you have heard a sermon about curiosity at church? Okay, let me rephrase that. How many of you have heard a sermon about encouraging curiosity at church? Right, it's not, well, you, Lee, you were here for the first one today, too, so you He's been very bad this week. He had to sit through it twice. Um, so Lee heard one this morning, right? Uh, but the reality is that's not when we think about faith, when we think about religion, when we think about church. The word that for most of us that doesn't pop into our mind is, is curious. It's about curiosity and being curious. So I want to talk about that today. It's one of our values. And I want to begin with a text that, I, you know, if you have gone to church for any length of time, you may have heard this text. It's from Matthew 16. And Jesus has essentially taken the disciples, his, his little band of followers, on a field trip to a, a specific town, and he has a specific conversation. So I want to read this, I want to talk a little bit about where they were and what he's asking, and then I want to think about what it means for us to pursue a, a faith that is curious and humble. So Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, 
He asked his disciples, who do people say the human one is? In older translations, it'll say the son of man. Who do you say the human one is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, and what about you? What do you who do you say that I am? So he brings them on this trip to a specific place, and you'll see a picture. This picture is the picture of uh, what Caesarea Philippi looks like today. You see that hole back? That's a cave. Uh, it was a cave where the ancients believed, the ancient people who lived there believed that it was the portal to the underworld, uh, to Hades, or in some, some mistranslations would say hell. Uh, and so it was a place where they believed that they would perform sacrifices, they would give offerings because they believed that the gods would come and go from the, the, this realm through this particular place. And in Jesus' day, the name had changed. It was no longer Peneus, it was Caesarea Philippi. And here's how that happened. First of all, there was a leader named Caesar. At this point, it was a guy named Tiberius. And then there was also a guy named King Herod. How many of you have heard of King Herod before? Herod the Great, uh, he shows up once, really, in the Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, eventually, Herod died around the time of Jesus' birth. And he had a son named Philip. And Philip was given charge of this particular geography. And so when Philip wants to create a town to impress his Roman bosses, he decides to name the town after Caesar and himself. So if you think about it, like Caesarea, it would basically be calling it Caesarville, right? Caesarville, Philip Town is sort of the name of the place. You, you include your boss and you include yourself and everybody gets memor- memorialized forever, right? I mean, he's been dead a long time and we're still talking about him because of what he named this particular town. And in Jesus' day, it was a place um, where some of this worship continued, but it was essentially non-Jewish territory. So Jesus and his disciples were thoroughly Jewish guys and they wouldn't travel to these places. And you have to understand the disciples were probably, what, 15, 20 years old at the most? I mean, they weren't likely these, these seasoned older men. They were these young guys who, can you imagine when Jesus takes them to this place that's kind of forbidden for them? They're wondering, what are mom and dad going to do when they find out we went to Caesarea Philippi? How many of you ever went somewhere in your youth that you really didn't want your parents or anyone else to find out about? Right? I have, this, I have this memory of uh, when I was in high school, we were all into wrestling, and we wanted to go watch, uh, one, we wanted to watch this wrestling pay-per-view, but we couldn't because nobody could get it except for the sports bar downtown, and my buddy and I snuck into the sports bar without telling our parents, and we watched the wrestling thing, and to this day, my mom and dad don't know, so I really hope they're not watching this, because then I'm going to have some explaining to do. Uh, but it's, it's sort of the thing, we, you know, Jesus brings the disciples to some place they shouldn't go. Uh, because it's, it's forbidden territory, it's unclean territory, it's dangerous territory. And when he gets them to this place where they never could imagine they would go, he asks them a question. And the first question is, he brings them to Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do people say the human one is? Who, do people th- who, who are people? What's the word on the street? What is the TMZ headline about who I am to people? And then they begin listing those things off. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, not too long ago at, at this point, had, re- had been beheaded by another one of the Herods. He'd been killed because he was preaching against that Herod's uh, way of governing. And so he'd been executed. And some people are like, you're John the Baptist, come back from the grave, right? Um, And some people say, no, 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 you're you're Elijah. So the story of Elijah is a fun one. How does Elijah leave the world? In a chariot of fire, like you do, right? I've never even been in a limo. He gets a chariot of fire. Uh, and so there was all this rumor and legend that Elijah would one day return and sort of herald the coming of the Messiah. And some people were saying that's who Jesus is. And some people thought, oh, he's John the Baptist. Other people, people thought he was Jeremiah, 
the weeping prophet who prophesied around the time of the exile and the destruction of the land by Babylon that Jesus had a similar message. And some people said he's just one of the prophets sort of reanimated and come back to life. And I think it's interesting that when they think about Jesus, the, the popular opinion about Jesus uh, locked him into the prophetic tradition. They, they knew that there was something prophetic about Jesus. Now, when we hear the word prophecy because of where we live in the Bible Belt and because of how we've been conditioned, we immediately start thinking about people telling the future, right? Um, how, how many of you have ever read one of those books or heard one of those preachers who was telling you about the end of the world? Anybody done that? Um, I, how many of you remember Y2K? This will definitely date where you are. Like, how many of you remember y I remember we were into that stuff. We were reading all the books about why Jesus was going to come back and the world was going to end on Y2K. And I remember just sitting there as it was counting down to midnight, waiting on like some sort of explosion. I didn't know what I was waiting on, but it didn't happen. Nothing happened. And every time there's like a new blood moon, John Hagee writes another book about it and nothing happens, right? Like, like this just keeps happening. When we talk about Bible, when we talk about prophecy, we talk about prophets, we aren't talking about people who tell you the future, and they're like, hey, and there's going to be this happen and this happen and this happen. Prophets are people who sort of take a survey of what's going on and believe that they have a word, a message from God, and they're going to act as the divine mouthpiece. That, that still happens in our world today, by the way. There are people right now, some of them very young, who are standing up and saying, unless we change our patterns, and unless we change the way we're living in relationship to our planet, we are not going to have a planet that we can live on. If we don't start taking climate change seriously, we're all going to die, right? You have people who are saying, unless we figure out a way, I mean, people like Martin Luther King Jr., among others, who have said, unless we find a way to live in equality and equity, we will never be the society we claim we want to be, right? When you think about issues like uh, guns, you have people who are saying, unless we change our relationship to violence and death and guns, we're not going to be the society we want to be. We have people doing that all over the place right now. And they are, in some ways, are doing what the prophets were doing. They're speaking a message that they believe is from the divine about how the world should be ordered and how the world should look. So when you read the Hebrew Bible, for example, don't read the prophets as saying things that they're predicting the future. They're warning people about the possible future. It's much more Charles Dickens, right? Where they're giving Scrooge a picture of where this could go if Scrooge doesn't change Scrooge's mind. And Jesus was doing that. I think much of what Jesus says in the Gospels are, is a warning against violent rebellion against Rome. And if you go read the stories and the preaching of Jesus as a call against violence, what you'll begin to see is it makes a lot of sense about, out of some of what he says. There's this line where he actually says to the disciples when they're at the temple in Jerusalem, and they're like, look how big these stones are. Look how massive this structure is. And Jesus says, but I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. All right, which is something that happened in 70 CE when the Romans sacked the city and burned the temple to the ground. Now, did Jesus cause that to happen? No, no, I think what Jesus is saying is if we don't rethink our violence and our tendency toward violence, if we don't put down the sword, if we don't decide, figure out there's a better way to resist evil than to just kill it and, and have this cycle of violence going back, if we don't learn to do this, it's all going to fall apart for us. And Jesus was sadly proved to be right. And by the way, Jesus is still right about that, I believe. If we don't find a new way to relate to one another in a world where we have more nuclear weapons than it would take to blow up the planet many times over, if we don't start to relate differently, we're all in trouble. And so Jesus brings them there to ask a question. But that, that first question, who do people say that I am, that wasn't the question. The question is the one that follows it. Okay, but who do you say that I am? 
who do you say that I am? And of course, one of the disciples, Simon Peter, he gives an answer, and it ends up being a really good answer, and it creates more discussion. But I want to stop there. I don't want to go to the answer. I just want to notice what Jesus does. Jesus says, who do you think I am? Which then leaves it open to them to do what? Respond. To give an answer. And the Jesus I grew up with would have said, who do you think I am? And when they start to answer, he would go, it doesn't matter what you think, here's the right answer. Right? It's when Jesus seems to be inviting you to say something, but then he cuts you off and says, no, 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 I'm not going to give you a chance to screw this up. I'm the son of God. That's what you need to know. Right? Like that's sort of the Jesus we grew up with. But Jesus in this story is actually encouraging curiosity. He's saying, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What, what do you think? What do you think about me? In the Gospels, uh, Jesus asks, uh, asks over 300 questions. He's asked over 180, but he only answers three. Isn't that interesting? And often when Jesus is asked a question, he responds with a question. They're like, Jesus, what do you think about this? He's like, I don't know. What do you think about this? How, how many of you do this every time you're with people and you try to go to dinner somewhere? Where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? It really doesn't matter to me. What would you like to have tonight? You know, I really have no opinion on what we should have tonight. What would you like to have? And suddenly we're no longer hungry and it's the next day because we can't decide. <laughs> where it is we're going to go have dinner together. Um, but the reality is Jesus doesn't seem really keen on answering questions. Like it's not that Jesus goes to the front of the room and says, okay, it's time for a Q&A. You ask the Q's, I've got the A's, right? Like that's not what Jesus does. Jesus actually will often respond with, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about it? Notice these examples from the Gospels. Matthew 17. They came into the house. Jesus spoke to Peter first. What do you think, Simon? He walks in the house and he says, what do you think? Matthew 18, what do you think? This is Jesus speaking. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them wandered off, wouldn't he leave the 99 on the hillsides and go and search for the one? What do you think? Isn't this what would happen? What do you think? Matthew 21, what do you think? A man had two sons. Now he came to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. Matthew 22, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Luke 10, this is the Good Samaritan story. What do you think? Which one of these three was the neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? What do you notice is a common thread in those questions, in those scriptures? It's this question, what do you think? Jesus, Jesus goes in and starts with, I want to hear from you. What do you think? Jesus begins by inviting curiosity. He doesn't go in as an answer man. He doesn't go in as somebody to, to quiet all the questions and give people a nice, firm, dogmatic, systematic theology that they can build their lives on. He walks in and says, I'm going to tell you, I want to tell you a story, and then I want to know what you think about it. Tell me what you think. What do you see as the meaning of this story? Jesus invites people to engage their curiosity, and it, it's transformative. So when I was about 20 years old, um, I got ordained, which sounds painful, doesn't it? Like they took you outside and beat you with something. Now you're ordained. So I got ordained, and when I, was, I got ordained in the Southern Baptist tradition back then, um, and when I was preparing for ordination, they used to do it one way, which was they would take, take you down into a room in the church basement, and they would ask you, all these men of the church and local preachers, would all, no women, because that's how it was you know, in that denomination, and they would bring you downstairs, and they would grill you for like three hours, and then they would celebrate and bring you upstairs, and they would like, like officially lay hands on you and have a service and a potluck and all that. Well, they changed it right around the time I was being ordained, and all that stuff that happened in private was now done in public. So I'm sitting on the stage of our church in a very uncomfortable comfortable coat and tie. And I had been, here's what they gave me. They gave me a book called What Baptists Believe. It was this thick. And they're like, be prepared to answer these questions. 
So I, I went and I memorized the answers to the questions. And when I would sit on the stage in front of the people, they would ask me a question and I would regurgitate pretty much verbatim the answer from the book that they'd given me. What do Baptists believe about blank? Or what do you believe? And of course, what I believe, if I want this piece of paper, had better be what Baptists believe, right? And I just wonder about that. I wonder about that. I mean, if, if there had been an extraterrestrial watching this, somebody from another planet, and we can debate that later, but if there were, <laughs> if there were, aliens, if there were, um, then what would they have looked down and said was the point? Like if they watched that process happen, what, what would they have said is the actual point of what we're doing? I think they would probably say the point is belief, right? The point is making sure you believe the right things, making sure you memorize the correct answers, making sure you know the response. But is that what the Christian journey is about? Is that what it means to be a person of faith, to just have the answers? Is that what we're trying to do is just give people like so that they have enough information so when somebody questions them, you can be like, I know the answer is B and the answer will always be B? Or is there something else going on? The ordination process for me wasn't, what is it that you're interested in? What are you curious about? What do you doubt? What do you have questions about? What can't you believe? Like, wouldn't that be an interesting ordination ceremony? Like, tell us the things you just can't believe because you don't believe they're true and you can't stomach them. That would have been fun, right? But that wasn't the process I was invited into. Actually, I think I and many of us were invited into a process where curiosity and questions were the slippery slope that would send you straight to apostasy or heretical, hereticville or something. Right? Like it was the place where you didn't want to go. And that's not a new thing in the Christian tradition. It's not just something our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-grandparents. This is something that's been going on for a very long time. There's an English churchman in the 17th century named Thomas Fuller. And he said this, Curiosity is a kernel of the forbidden fruit which still sticketh, because you can still say that, sticketh, in the throat of a natural man, sometimes to the danger of his choking. What's he saying there? If you're curious, you will choke. If you're curious, you're in trouble. So uh, at our house, we watch a lot of kids' movies, because uh, we have a lot of kids, and they all want to pick. Uh, and there's one movie that whenever we bump up against it, I'm always, this particular scene comes out. How many of you have seen the movie The Croods? You know, it's a movie about this cave family. Um, and to give you this, I'm going to show you a clip and I want to set up the scene. And the scene is the daughter is sort of rebellious and she wants to go out and explore new things. She's curious about how the world works and who else and what else is out there in the world. And the father is very protective and very fearful. And so he wants to make sure she knows that leaving the cave isn't safe. Going out on her own isn't safe, that bad things will happen to her. And he's going to tell her a story, but they have a little, I think they call it crispy bear. It's like a charred teddy bear. Uh, he's going to use this bear as a way of telling his daughter the, about the dangers of being curious. So check this out. A long time ago, this little bear was alive. She was alive because she listened to her father and lived her life in routine and darkness and terror. So she was happy. But crispy had one terrible problem. She was filled with curiosity. <laughs> yes, yes. And one day, while she was in a tree, the curious little bear wanted to climb to the top. And no sooner than she climbed to the top, she saw something new and died. Just like that? Yes. Her last moments of terror still frozen on her face. <laughs> So you catch the gist there, right? She saw something new and then died because seeing something new will kill you, right? But 
there's a certain amount of that that is interwoven into our religious experiences. Right? This fear of, what if I don't always believe the things I was handed? What if I have questions? What if, what if some of the things I've been told about God, about the universe, about the Bible, about people, what if some of that stuff no longer works for me? What do I do with it? Do you just sort of try to believe it anyway, or, or do you leave it behind? Do you rethink it? Do you unravel it and see what you can create out of it? And I think that what we're most afraid of when it comes to curiosity is that, I think what a lot of us are afraid of and the people before us were afraid of is what if we can't keep doing it the way we've always done it? What if our questions lead us to a brand new conclusion? And by the way, I think the danger is for us in our time to think that we are so much smarter than the people before us that we've arrived at the best conclusion. Because I promise you, our, our offspring and the people before, ahead of us, they will think that we were wrong about a lot of things. right? And so I think that there's something about this curiosity that we want to crush it. We want to bring the status quo because we can we know what's predictable, right? She lived her life in something, predictability and terror, right? Is that the way we want to live in the world? I, I think the biggest barrier to curiosity for us, especially in the realm of faith, is fear. It's being afraid. Being afraid that, does this resonate with anybody? Being afraid that if you pull this one belief out that everything else around it will collapse? It's like Jenga, uh, anybody like to play Jenga? You know the game with all the, the board, boards? What do you call those? Logs? Things that are stacked up on each other and you're trying to pull it out without knocking it over? Uh, gosh, if I ask this question, if I change my view on what the Bible is, if I change my view on what the word God means, will everything else come crumbling down around it? And there's a fear there. So instead of saying, let's see what happens, we're, we're sort of taught to be fearful um, because we can knock the whole thing down. Is it ultimately about being afraid that if we get something wrong, God's going to be really, really furious at us? Like God's going to be so angry? I mean, how many times have you been warned that one day you're going to stand before God? And all my life, people have tried to tell me that God was a good thing, and yet they keep threatening me with having to be around God. I'm not sure I'm getting a mixed message here, right? Like, oh, God's the best. Do not stand in front of God. Do not catch God on a bad day, right? Like, is that how it really works? Is God looking down and thinking, oh my goodness, they've gotten one thing wrong or they've gotten two things wrong or they've gotten everything wrong? Look, I can promise you that I'm wrong about some things. I don't even, I just don't know what they are. And if I did, I would fix it. I just don't know. And you're wrong about some things and you don't know. Ultimately, that's what the word faith is talking about. Right? Faith isn't the same thing as certainty. And I think that the other thing we want so desperately is we, we want to cling to the status quo because of fear and because we desperately want certainty. I mean, how many times have we been asked, do you know that you know that you know that you know that you know? And the only answer I can give that anymore is no. <laughs> I do not know that I know that I know. I think, I trust, I hope. I don't know. I don't know anything. There are people from my past and in my life right now who would love to hear me say that, but they're, you know, they're not here, so they don't get that, that privilege. I just don't know, and you don't know, and that's okay. That's what faith is ultimately talking about, that we don't know, and so we, we trust the best we can that the way we're living, that the way we see God, that the way we see the Bible, that the way we encounter Jesus, that the way we treat other people is the way, the best way for us to treat. I think we, don't, we also... In fear and certainty, we don't know how to respond. Have you ever gotten mad at somebody who asked you a question about your belief system and you were angry because you didn't know how to respond to what they said? You ever been one of those awkward moments where you just yelled something at them about how you were more spiritual than them or how they didn't believe the Bible or how they were heretics or whatever? Have you ever been in that situation? That's a real situation. It's a real thing. 
and we do it out of fear. Because if they ask me a question I don't know how, I don't know how to answer, it'll, it'll make it seem like I don't really believe. Is that what God really wants? Does God just want a bunch of believers? People who can pass a, an ordination ceremony by giving the right responses, but really who've never been allowed to think about whether or not those are their responses. And so I think curiosity is a gift to faith. And it's a gift that we have not opened as much as we should have over the past 2,000 years of the Christian tradition. I think there are two things that have to be present in order for that to happen. You have to have courage and you have to have humility. You have to have courage because when you start being curious and you start asking questions and you start listening to your doubts and you start listening to your intuition that says maybe this isn't the way it is, you will bump up against people who are very, very frustrated by that. Um, we actually, last week, they um, showed uh, the documentary American Heretics at the Belcourt, and I got to be a part of a little panel afterward. And what I said at the beginning of the panel was, this is the first time I've ever been invited somewhere because I'm a heretic. Um, I've been uninvited from a lot of places because I'm a heretic. It's the first time I've ever been invited, right? And when, one of the things that I've learned is when you start stepping out into the world saying, mm, maybe, maybe the Bible isn't this thing that fell out of the sky. Maybe it is a human creation about response to the divine, but it's very human. It has human fingerprints all of it. Maybe God isn't angry and sitting back and ready to throw lightning bolts at people. Right? Maybe, maybe Jesus is bigger than we ever possibly imagined Jesus was. Maybe the, maybe the narrow path doesn't mean that very few people get to go on it. Maybe what Jesus is talking about is something else, that few people choose it, right? That's different than kicking them out. Um, so what if it's all different? And when you do that, I mean, we, we, live, we live in the buckle of the Bible belt, y'all. I mean, have you been shocked in any way? Even I've lived here my whole life in the Bible belt. I'm sometimes still shocked by where religion pops up. And it's often a very particular brand of religion. Uh, when we lived in Morgantown, I would do um, football games on Friday nights with the local radio station, and if they forgot to ask somebody to do the prayer before the game, which I have no idea what we're doing, they would always ask me, and I would always try to hide because I didn't want to do it. Number one, I didn't know why we were praying before a football game, but number two, I didn't know what to pray. Like, God help us smite our enemies? I don't feel like that's a very kind prayer. Like, what do you do? It's just shocking to me. There's, there's religion everywhere in the Bible Belt. And often, if you are in a situation, you're at work, you're with a group of people, and somebody says something, and you're like, oh, I, don't, I can't go with that. And you say, well, I don't see it that way. I see it differently. Then you're opening yourself up to all sorts of criticism and attack, right? It takes courage to be curious. And it takes courage because you have to begin to say, you know what, if everything I believe is wrong, I, I'm willing to risk it to find something that's true, right? Like, eventually, we can try to protect this thing that we, we know maybe isn't the best, or we can venture out and try to discover truth. And you come to a point where you're choosing to be courageous and say, if I end up believing in nothing at the end of this, if that's true, I would rather believe in nothing than believe in something that I know isn't working for me and the people around me. So it takes courage. And it also takes humility. Now, I, I think humility is a thing that we've talked about poorly in church. Because I don't think humility means that we feel terrible about ourselves. I don't think humility is about degrading or devaluing us as human beings. Right? I, I grew up in church all my life, and if I've heard one person say they're not worthy, I, maybe they're just quoting Wayne's World, I'm not sure. But it, if they're not, then they have a really low self-esteem. And the, what has handed them that low self-esteem is religion. They've been told they're depraved, they've been told they're unworthy, that there's nothing good in them. And friends, that's just not true. That's just patently false. And the people propagating it really believe it. But it's false. You are worthy, you are valued, you are beloved. 
The fact that you exist means you're worthy. So when we talk about humility, we're not talking about somehow undermining what it means, you know, saying bad things about what it means to be human or saying bad things or holding a bad opinion about ourselves. Saying, uh, it's, it's saying that actually, we just don't have it all figured out. Like I think central to humility is I don't have it all figured out. I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers. Humility is saying, I realize that I am a speck of dust riding a speck of dust in one particular corner of an ever-expanding universe. I may not be as, as massively important as I think I am sometimes. My opinion may not be the end-all, be-all. And it's saying, at the end of the day, I, I know that I'm wrong. I'm wrong about something. I'm wrong about something, and I am open to learning something new. That's what humility says. When I've heard from people who say, you know, that person's really teachable. What are they saying? That person is open because they start the process by realizing they don't have it all figured out. Can you imagine if we all started there? Can you imagine the humility that would enter our political system? Can you imagine the humility that would enter, enter our religious systems, our school systems, our, our county government, our city governments? Can you imagine what would change in human relationships if everybody walked in going, I'm open because I don't know it all. And when you don't know it all, you can really become curious about all sorts of things you don't know. You can really begin to ask questions. You can really begin to say, I have a doubt about this. And you can do so resting in the truth and the confidence that God is not afraid of your doubts. God is not afraid of your questions. God is not afraid of your curiosity. There isn't a room that God has like locked and doesn't want you to go in because God doesn't want you to know what's in there. God isn't afraid of you. Your questions do not intimidate God. Actually, your questions could be the thing that unlocks the next thing that opens you up to a better and bigger and more wonderful experience of God than you've ever possibly imagined because you had to get rid of this thing that wasn't serving you well so you can embrace something else that is serving you well. And ultimately, God's acceptance of you doesn't depend on having it right. Knowing all the, your, your systematic theology, your, I really am getting to the point in my life where I don't have any of those things really anymore. I just want to live in, in love in a, in a way that makes the world better. And I think that's what the point of it all is, right? Because when we start, it's, when we start jumping through hoops, there's always going to be another hoop. And eventually they're going to start setting those things on fire and it becomes even more dangerous. And the reality is, it is all grace, baby. It is all grace all the time. It has never been dependent on you. It never will be dependent on you. Having the right answers, always saying the right thing, believing the right thing, it doesn't depend on us. It is something we get to receive and trust and live out of. So at Grace Point, we want to cultivate a community where your curiosity isn't something we put up with, but it's something we welcome. It isn't something that we tolerate. It's something that we encourage. We encourage you to ask questions. We encourage you to push boundaries. We encourage you to be open to that thing that you don't know right now that maybe when you find out about it, it'll change everything for you. We want you to ask your questions. We want you to pursue your doubts. We want you to know that this community is a safe place to do that in and that you won't get kicked out if you ask that. Well, we said everything. We said we were open to questions, but they asked that question. That question doesn't exist. You get to ask them as a part of this community. And what I hope happens is, and I see this happen at Reconstruct all the time, is where one person brings something they're curious about and another person does, and it actually creates something beautiful. So, at Grace Point, we want to be a community that cultivates curiosity. And we want to do that in the most humble and kind and generous ways with one another. And I think we're doing it. And I think there are lots and lots of people who aren't here yet who are looking for that. 
who are looking for a place where they don't have to check their brain or their heart at the door, they don't have to leave their questions behind, but they can enter into and be fully embraced in a community, even if they get up and say, I just don't know. You know why? Because we just don't know. A dear friend of mine who's at Reconstruct all the time sometimes uh, will go on and say something that's so profound and beautiful, and at the end he'll go, but I don't know. <laughs> and I think it's the most beautiful thing. Maybe, maybe we should end every religious communication with, I don't know. So friends, what I want to leave you with today, I don't know. But I do know that curiosity is one of the ways we get there. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this community. We are grateful for this opportunity to gather, to bring in our doubts and questions, to bring our curiosities. We're grateful to be a part of a community where the phrase, I wonder, isn't taken as a hostile threat, but as an incubating source of new life. May we see curiosity as vital to transformation, as central to who we will become, not only as people, but as we grow together, who we'll become as a community. May we not listen to the fear that tries to tell us that somehow God's disappointed if we don't have it all figured out, but may we realize that in our own tradition, Jesus regularly, regularly began with, what do you think? And may we see that as an invitation from the divine to enter into our curiosity and our questions. And may we hold them as sacred. We love you and we're grateful. We pray in Jesus' name and everybody said. Amen.